0: Well, I'd like to begin this morning by asking you a question. What is it that you desire? What do you desire? In May of 2016, Forbes magazine published an article entitled Eight Things People Desperately Desire But Can't Seem to Attain. So just listen to the top 4 Desires listed. Number four, peace. Number three, freedom. Number two, money. And number one, the greatest desire that people want but can't seem to attain. Number one, happiness. Happiness. Go find a spouse. Go find a fast car, go find a satisfying career path, and if that won't do it, manufacture it. Find a distraction that temporarily numbs absolutely everything in hopes to find true lasting happiness. But we all know it won't last, don't we? It never does. True lasting happiness isn't found in cars, food, fun, or fantasy. I mean, just listen to what the writer from Forbes magazine says. She writes, happiness is constantly out of our control and a perpetual moving target that never stands still long enough for us to grasp. If everything you're searching for remains outside of you, you'll always be chasing and scrambling. Now, according to Jesus, this sentiment couldn't be further from the truth. If we look within ourselves for happiness, we'll be searching forever. And so here is the reality. The Lord Jesus doesn't say that happiness can't be obtained. No, it's that true, lasting happiness isn't possible outside of Christ Jesus. Happiness in this life and the one to come is found in him. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually describes true happiness as the fruit of those who love the king, who obey the king, and do all things for the glory of the king. And so what we will see is that Jesus' disciples are invited by the king himself to pursue kingdom living in a fallen world with Godward hearts and others-oriented living amid persecution so that we might enjoy true happiness in the kingdom of God. Both now and the kingdom forevermore. So, with that said, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, you can find the passage on page 809. And while you turn there, feel free to look at your outline, and you're going to notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, Godward hearts. Number two, relationship to others. And number three, invitation to happiness. But first, Godward hearts. Follow along with me as I read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what we see is that Jesus has just finished ministering to the crowds in chapter 4, right? And so as we walk into chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus begins by, well, the the narrative begins by saying, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain to do what? To teach. He opens his mouth after climbing up this mountain with his disciples, and he teaches. But who is Jesus teaching here? Well, he's certainly speaking to the entire crowd that he's been ministering to, but the Beatitudes are intended only for those who have ears to hear. Those who have taste buds for the kingdom. This set is for Christ's disciples. But to understand all that Jesus is about to teach, it's necessary to see the ongoing theme of Jesus' ministry as displayed by Matthew. Just look with me at Matthew 4.23. Matthew writes, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And what was the gospel message that was proclaimed? Well, just look at chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, is at hand. So we need to get this. If the kingdom is at hand, then certainly the promised king is at hand. And this king, what's happening is he's ushering in his kingdom through his ministry. That's what we see. And so as we look at Matthew 5, 3 through 12, what is Jesus doing? Well, what he does here is he declares be an invitation of how to live in the kingdom, both now, presently, and forever in the kingdom. And so this is first seen in the introductory marks of kingdom living. This is the introduction, if you will, of Jesus' sermon on the mount to the people. So look at verse 3 with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now I want us and I want to just highlight that what Jesus is doing in this Particular section is explaining exactly what it means for his disciples in his kingdom to have Godward hearts. And, and secondly, to live others oriented ways. That's what we're going to see. Two different sections Godward hearts and outward living in relationship with others. That's what we'll see. And it begins by looking first at the Godward hearts of his people in the first four Beatitudes. And so it's clear. These specific statements all are integrating a specific way that we relate relationally with the Lord. So Jesus begins with a description of who we are in his presence. This is who we are, no less, no more. So we see that in the first four statements. But look at how these statements begin. It starts with blessed. Blessed. Or blessed. Now, this word is quite common in the Bible, right? And it's important for us this morning to ask a very important question How does Jesus use this word blessed in Matthew 5? Because what this word actually means is to be happy or to flourish. So it's a word that's typically seen in wisdom literature. Places like Psalm 1, when the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Or Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Right. So this word, blessed, has, has this connotation of a declaration of a way in which we live in the world that is wise. It's a wise way of living. Just like the man who walks down the counsel of the wicked, just like the one who finds true wisdom, it is happy is the person who walks. Happy is the one who finds true wisdom. In fact, the wisdom idea that's connected with this word blessed reminds me of how my grandfather often talks with me, right? This guy is in his 80s, and he's lived an entire life and had many experiences, both great ones and difficult ones, and so any and every time we get together, you know what my grandfather does? He sits me down, and he chats with me, and every time we talk, what does he want to do? He wants to point me in the direction of how to best live my life, that I might find rest and enjoy a good life. It's like the teacher, right, who is pointing the audience to the way in which you find true life. And that's exactly what Jesus looks to accomplish. He is setting the sights of his people on the description of what it looks to live the happy life of those who are in Christ. And so Jesus' desire isn't to tell his disciples what they should be, but rather it describes who we are as citizens of his kingdom. And so we must not be mistaken. The Beatitudes are not a list of what we must do to be blessed, as seen with the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy, where God will grant blessings and curses on the people based on their actions. No, Jesus is giving a clear vision for what the happy life, a life of flourishing, looks like right now. In fact, just look at how the first four excuse me, the first four statements are given as descriptions. For all of Christ's kingdom people. Look in verse 3. Number 1, the king's people are happy because they are poor in spirit. Meaning they are spiritually bankrupt. They got no pennies in their pockets to give to the king. They've got nothing to bring to the table. They are fully dependent upon God's mercy and grace. It's like the old refrain, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. But to be clear, this isn't a self-hatred, right? but a proper and necessary understanding before a holy, all-powerful God that radically shapes the way that we perceive who we are before this infinite, holy God. Which, of course, leads the Christian view of not only themselves... But it shows their sinfulness before a holy God. Verse 4, number 2, the king's people are mourners. Not in the way that they weep over the loss of loved ones, but rather it's a weeping, a brokenness, a mourning over their sinfulness before this holy, righteous king. Right. So considering our knowledge of who God is and the Lord's hatred for sin, his kingdom people are absolutely broken over their sin. And there's a deep despising of the sin that still remains within us. Right? And so what you have is you have these spiritually bankrupt people with a disposition that hates and is broken over their own sinfulness, which then brings forth humility before the Lord. Number three, the king's people are humble, meek, Gentle and lowly, as verse 5 says. It's, it's a heart that is absolutely made low before the Lord. And so, where else does a Christian have to turn? Right? Once we have realized our inability, our feeble nature before the Almighty God of the universe, by God's grace, we gradually become humble people, gentle and lowly of heart, recognition. Of our bankruptcy before the king. Recognition of our sinfulness before the king. Which makes us all the more humble before him. And so then the fourth beatitude moves us. It moves us from who we are in light of who God is. To what we crave. Right? We are broken. We are sinful. We are humble before him. Therefore, number four, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look in verse six. That word there, that righteousness idea, that is not what typically what we typically find in Paul's writings about how we are declared righteous by God. This is not the connotation of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I mean, those are glorious truths, and we love those truths, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. No, the, the word here for righteousness is a whole person behavior It's a completeness, a wholeness that's in complete alignment with God's will. And not only follows the Lord externally, right, in actions and attitudes, but it's an internal alignment. It's an internal love, obedience, and desire to be about the king's business. That is the connotation to righteousness in this context. And so do you see how these ideas just weave together so perfectly? God's people have Godward hearts. That's the description of who we are and how we live. The Christian knows who the king is and therefore their entire understanding of who they are shapes the way that we live. And we know deeply who God is. Then the only response is truly spiritual bankruptcy, is truly brokenness over sin, gentleness in living, and we crave, we hunger, we thirst to live righteous lives. This is the foundation of kingdom life. The Lord Jesus' kingdom's people are those who have been so gripped by the very nature of who God is that they are radically different than the world around them so what we see in the Beatitudes is like a plow in the fields. Right, the plow comes along and digs a canal through the dirt for seeds to be placed. New seeds to be made abroad. To brought forth, excuse me. And so in a similar way, these beatitudes are the means by which God uses to plow our hearts anew by His Spirit. The Lord breaks apart our inner soil of heart that fashions a people unstained by the world. And so this is what it looks like to live fully and freely and happily now until we enjoy the King for all eternity. Now do you just see how countercultural this is? I mean, just imagine being this audience. This crowd, looking on this mount, and Jesus turns listeners' view of what it actually means to live the good, happy life in the world completely upside down, which is exactly what he continues to do, and we find this even in see the result. So as we enter in to see the resolutions here, let me just ask you, does this seem like the happy life to you? Does this actually look like the life... That you desire? Is this really what it looks like to flourish in the here and now and forever? Well, according to Jesus, yes, it certainly does. This is the road to true happiness, the blessed life. I mean, in verse 3, look at what Jesus says again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So just notice The clear, positive result flowing from the happy ones who are bankrupt. They know that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And the kingdom is theirs, not 50 years from now, not 100 years from now. No, the kingdom has come, right? The king is ushered in the kingdom. The kingdom is here. Therefore, right now, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The spiritual bankrupt, the lowest of the low, experience true reward. The kingdom is theirs. I mean, just think about that for the disciple. Even for us. Those trusting in Christ right now. The kingdom is ours. Even now. Unfathomable. So in one sense, his people, the Lord Jesus' people, dwell and enjoy the kingdom presently. But look at verses 4 through 6. There is sandwiched here a forward-looking reward system here, right? The rewards all look to the future. Verse 4, the mourners shall, future, be comforted. Verse 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, the cravers of righteousness shall be satisfied. So what we see here is an already not yet reality of the kingdom. In one sense, we are in the kingdom right now as seen in verses 3 and 9. The kingdom is theirs. And an experience of life of happiness is a reality. Through spiritual bankruptcy, mourning over sin, gentleness, hungering for righteousness, there really is a happiness through faithful obedience. The kingdom is theirs and there is blessing. But it's just a foretaste. Of what will be experienced, right? In future. When we enjoy true and final happiness in Christ. That's what we see in verses 4 through 6. When we are fully and finally comforted. When we truly inherit the earth as his adopted heirs. And when he satisfies our hunger and our thirsting for godliness once and for all. So Jesus grounds the way God's followers live with Godward hearts by doing what? By showcasing the reward of supreme happiness in the king himself. That's what he's doing. And so I just want you to notice the first set of Beatitudes that we've seen here. Describe a people with Godward hearts. And when we see him as he is, we recognize who we are and what we owe so desperately need. We need the king. We need the King. And so the first portion of Jesus' invitation to the blessed life has to do with our relationship vertically with the Lord. But what we'll see is secondly, it's also laced in our relationship with others. There's a horizontal relationship that Jesus describes. Just look with me at verses 7 through 12. Jesus declares, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now in verses 7 through 9, Jesus speaks of the happiness experienced by those who are merciful, pure, and then peacemakers. And so there's a certain way that Christians live. This is the description of how Christians live in relationship with other people. Others-oriented living. Just look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Happy, or blessed, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now why is the Christian merciful? Why is this significant for Jesus to say this? Well, it's because they've experienced the mercy and kindness of the Lord. The follower knows that they are spiritually bankrupt, right? They mourn for their sin. Therefore, they know the severity of their situation before a righteous, holy judge. They deserve hell because of sin, but the kingdom is offered to them. And the king is going to be so willing to lay down his life for his friends, isn't he? And so Jesus is telling his audience that the one who has received mercy is the one who will be merciful as an outworking of their faith in the Lord. It's similar to what Jesus is going to say in chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, when he goes on to say, forgive as you have been forgiven. Right. So in the same way, mercy is the outworking of a heart that's been transformed. It's counter-cultural. So we receive mercy, so we are merciful people. Now let me just pause here for a moment. Are you merciful? Are we merciful people? Are we quick to forgive? When you get cut off on the highway, when your son breaks your most prized possession, when you're wronged by your spouse, When your friend doesn't meet your expectations. What's your response? Is it forgiveness? Is it mercy? Or is it a grudge? It's clear. That the description of God's people according to Jesus here. Is that kingdom dwellers are merciful. So how about us? Does mercy define your approach to living life relationally with others? Now just look with me at verse 8, because Jesus isn't done. He says, happy are the pure in heart. Now the question that you must ask here is how does this have to do with our relationship with others, right? Pure in heart seems pretty individually based, well, certainly there's a section of this that pure means to be morally clean of heart. But it goes deeper than just that pureness of heart regarding lust and sexual sin. In a deeper sense, it means to be uncompromised in our dedication to the Lord Jesus. It's the exact same idea as Jesus' brother speaks of in James 4.8. James says this, purify your hearts, you double-minded men. Now, this is a really helpful verse for us because it actually uncovers the great problem, right? The great problem behind the purity of heart is one who's not singularly devoted to the Lord, but is an impure person, one who is double-minded, one who casts their gaze on relationships in unhealthy ways, distracted. You know, one time I had the opportunity to speak with a well-known person, And I will not tell you who it is. But as I was talking to them, and as you can imagine, I was quite excited. What did they start to do? Well, we're standing straight face to face, and all of a sudden, their eyes start to trail off this way. And I'm talking, and they keep looking. They see a person moving this way. And then, you know what they do next? Next. Then they turn, they they move their body and lean to the left to look around me as I'm talking to look at one person who's about 30 feet off in the distance. And so I continue in this very, very important monologue telling them all about my life. And all of a sudden, this gentleman says, hey, yeah, you over here. Yeah, I want just make sure you see this person. and And I'm still talking to this person, not giving me any of the time of day. Which was probably warranted. But this man was divided. Double-minded. Not pure in his heart towards the one who stood right in front of him. I mean, four feet. And he's dodging around to find someone to talk to 30 feet away. So according to verse 8, what we see here isn't a real description of follower of the king. The Christian is not double-minded. The Christian holds all relationships with others in a fallen world in their proper place and is singularly devoted to the Lord. They're pure of heart. And so what's the reward for the pure of heart? you see it in verse 8? Man, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God what a reward that that's in fact the great desire of God's people that we see him that we know him and that we enjoy him this is the lasting treasure the great lasting treasure that those that are his will really really and truly experience that's happiness it's him that we are happy in both now and forever Which then brings us to our third statement in verse 9 regarding others' oriented relationships. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So happy are the peacemakers. right? Those that pursue peace and ensure that peace is made. So kingdom living isn't a conquering affair, is it? No, citizens of the kingdom are friends of peace and they pursue peace. We reconcile with others as God has seen fit to reconcile with us through the Lord Jesus, his son. And so what's the great reward? They shall be called sons of God. And so Jesus explains the invitation to pursue others-oriented, God-honoring, horizontal relationships and as we've seen, the rewards are great for the people of God, those that are truly living life in this way. But as Jesus continues unpacking what it looks like to be others oriented, there's a direct and weighty implication for his followers. And it's a part of the life of the Christian. It's the horizontal. Relationship with others. If you are in relationship with other people, if you're walking about in, on this planet, well, there is a high percentage that persecution will come. It's a reality of the Christian life in the fallen world. And so that's where we see B, endurance in persecution. Just look at verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, So for the sake of pursuing godly behavior, that's in step with God's design for his people, right? That's the idea of righteousness' sake. But why? Look at what he says. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now there are two aspects within these statements that we need to address. Number 1, the reality of persecution, and number 2, the reward of persecution. So first, the reality of persecution. Just notice how Jesus speaks of persecution in verse 10, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But he's not done there, is he? right he then doubles down in verses 11 through 12 to highlight all the more the staggering statement that Jesus just made about persecution and we know this to be true because Jesus not only unpacks persecution but he then personalizes the remarks for his audience meaning he goes from a general call to persecution right the idea of blessed are those who are persecuted to then a all the more direct address, one that intensifies the invitation, right? He says in verse 10, happy are those who are persecuted. And then he says in verse 11, happy are you who are persecuted. It's a direct remark for his kingdom people. So not only are God's people persecuted for righteousness sake as a part of the blessed, happy life, but in verse 11, Jesus tells us that the happy life is one where others revile, persecute, and utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on account of Jesus. Now the question we must ask, how can Jesus possibly say those who are persecuted are those who experience happiness? It's really important to keep in mind our understanding of blessed. This isn't do this and you get this. This is the description of what takes place for the Christian. We will be persecuted. Therefore, there is reward. Right. What we must be aware of this morning is that without question, being persecuted, being reviled, being falsely accused, these are horrible experiences. And yet, what we see, according to Jesus, is that along with the reality of persecution comes a true and sure reward of persecution. Just listen to the resolutions connected with persecution in verse 10, right? Blessed are the persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see Jesus doesn't have a category for stripping the happy life in Christ right now from difficulty. No, there's no category of that. Jesus makes clear that a happy life in him now is costly. Persecution, accusation, difficulty, reviling are realities for his people. And yet They're happy. How's that possible? Well, the reward is great. I mean, just think back to the book of Acts. Acts 13, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching the good news of the gospel to Gentiles. And the word's going forth with power. And listen to what happens. Acts 13, verses 49 through 52, it says this. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. Listen to this. And the disciples were filled with joy. (laughs) How is that possible? How is it possible they could be persecuted, run out of town, and they're filled with joy? Well, we just need to see the connection here that is so beautifully interwoven between Jesus' description of the Christian in Matthew 5 and what we see in Acts 13. Persecution comes. The Jews drive out Paul and Barnabas and persecution is stirred. And what do these happy men do? They kick the dust off their heels and they're filled with joy. Why? Because just as we've seen in Matthew 5, their happiness is not dependent upon their circumstance. Their happiness goes far beyond this world. I mean, John Calvin says, many people hold to the erroneous belief that the happy man is the one who leads an easy life. But the mistaken idea is that true happiness is about our present emotional state. However, in these Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, the disciple of Christ learns that their happiness goes beyond the world. Just like Paul and Barnabas. So the persecution, the reviling, the accusation from others in this life is not a deflation of our happy lives in Christ right now. But it's one that instigates our joy because our eyes are fixed on the reward that is to come. The prize of enjoying the King in all His beauty. When Jesus' words will be a complete reality. We will inherit the earth. We will enjoy God. We will be comforted. We will receive mercy. We will see God. Oh, that is the jet engine for Paul and Barnabas. And that is the driving force of our happiness in Christ. And even as we endure difficulty, there's a reward in store for the Christian. And so, this morning, we've seen that true and lasting happiness is actually available, but it's only available through and in the Lord Jesus himself, right We see it everywhere we desire to be happy but and that's not a bad pursuit, however, the only right and good and godly pursuit is a happiness that looks to find its its sorry, for someone to find their supreme happiness in Christ alone. Happiness in Him is possible. So how can we grow in pursuing our relationship with God and with other people in such a way that leads us to experience the happiness that Jesus speaks of in these very beatitudes? I'd like to just highlight three specific applications. Number one, we cultivate Godward hearts. Number two, we pursue honorable relationships. And number three, we endure persecution with joy. So first, by God's spirit, Christ's followers can truly cultivate Godward hearts. But you know what? Even as I've been preparing the last couple of weeks, I've come across a big problem. Specifically in my own heart. I find myself way too easily puffed up. Meaning I'm quick to not recognize my spiritual bankruptcy. I don't mourn over my sin as I ought. And I don't know about you, but without saying it aloud and without ever dreaming of it in my head, my heart is prone to wander. It's prone to shout, I'm sufficient I'm enough. My sin isn't that bad. But then I keep coming back to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm reminded. Oh no. You are insufficient. You can't do it. You are not enough. He's sufficient. He is enough. He supplies. We we come in complete. Dependence upon him. We need the Lord Jesus every single hour. And I forget that. And so as I've reflected on my heart. There are two significant ways that we can and we must be cultivating Godward hearts. And so the first way is by cultivating Godward hearts with others. So I'm not foolish to believe that I'm the only one who's quite forgetful. And so we need help in the cultivation process. We need help in seeing and knowing and remembering who we are in light of who he is. So what must we do? We help one another as we live out our lives with Godward hearts. We make time with our spouses, our our family members, a member from the church, and we investigate our hearts together. We need to foster relationships that give opportunity to place our hearts smack dab on the operating table and decipher where we are prone to be proud and unwilling to discover and dismantle blind spots in our lives. But not only do we look introspectively, right? We we don't want to do that far too long. But we want to move forward by faith. And we want to gaze beyond ourselves. We need eyes of faith to zoom in on just how glorious God is. You want to know who you are? We got to look at who he is. So secondly, we must be well steeped in the scriptures. We need passages like Isaiah forty twenty one. We want to go and walk to the very edge of the Grand Canyon. And gaze at its grandeur. I mean, just listen to Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 21. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, the Lord, who sits above the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Who is it? The Lord. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. What does he do? He increases strength. Just hear. The beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah. At the very pinky of the weight of who God is should come forth from these truths, from his people, the resounding anthem, I bring my nothing to the king. We're grasshoppers in his presence. Brothers and sisters, we must know him. And not like the demons know Him, but we must be slumped over at the well of all that God is for us in Christ and drink afresh of the glories of the gospel. Oh yes, not only is He almighty and holy, but through Christ He's merciful, good, and loving friend. Even when we were dead in our sins, this King came. He lived a life of humiliation in our stead. He bore the curse that was ours to bear and he rose again three days later as victor over death. You see, we couldn't possibly forge an avenue to proclaim that we're enough. We can't. No, Christ is sufficient. We are in need. Christ is all-powerful. We are weak. We bring our nothing And he himself graciously supplies absolutely everything for us that we might be brought near to God the Father forever. So let me ask you Are you flippant in your orientation toward the Lord? Has your love for the Lord Jesus grown cold? Do you truly believe that you have nothing to bring to the table this morning? It's clear we come thrust upon the throne of grace even now in complete submission and humility to him. We've got nothing to bring to the king. It's only to the cross that we cling. So even right now, if by the weight of some of these things you feel shame, And you want to run to being even more flippant. I would would encourage you to not do that. But instead to pray. To pray that God would give you a hunger for righteousness. A hunger for humility. A hunger first and foremost for the king of glory. I pray that we see more clearly the beauty of Christ this morning. And in light of who he is. We see ourselves all the more clearly that we would recognize we are poor in spirit. Oh, we are meant to be mourners. We are to be humble before the King. We humbly come and thirst for Him with full assurance that the kingdom of heaven is ours. Praise God. In light of our standing, we are king, we are heirs of the kingdom. But our position in the kingdom is not dependent on us, is it? No, it's rooted firmly and finally in the finished work of Christ. And I pray that it would be the case this morning that we would be serious about these things, that we would come boldly and come humbly. But specifically, dear sinner, those who have not yet put their faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, I am here to tell you this morning that you, as well as us, bring our nothing before the King. Your sin has created an infinite chasm between you and the God of all creation. And there is only one way that you might truly actually have access to the throne of this wondrous God. And it's through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of men, the perfect God-man, the one who came to deal with sin and bring us to God. So I appeal to you even now, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived, died, and rose from the dead, that you might have life forever with Him, that you might be saved. That you might be found happy in Christ alone for all your days. So, not only do we cultivate Godward hearts, but we, number two, pursue honorable relationships. As Christians, that is what we do. I mean, just remember the descriptions of kingdom living that Jesus has given. There's a horizontal aspect that we must not neglect. We aren't living in a world we aren't living in a world all on our own. No, we do life with other people. And so regarding these relationships, God's people are to be merciful. They're to be home, they're to be pure of heart. They're to be peacemakers. Now I so appreciate the charges that are designed for the Christian here. Right, these statements, because the encouragements are to display one simple truth for us to get our heads around. Right? Relationships are messy. And God's call for his people is to jump right into the mess. So as you do so, as you're living and doing life together, God's people are merciful in light of it. We're pure of heart in the midst of it. We are peacemakers as we engage with those in the world. And so this is a call to not be passive in our relationships with others, but to pursue honorable, God-honoring relationships by faith, relationships that are for His glory. And so we should be those in the church and those in the world that are building relationships with others. But as we are living in the world, we serve in our orientation to love others filled with mercy purity, and with peace. And so if your family were to evaluate the way that you dispense mercy, purity, and peace in relationships, what would be said of you? Is peace, purity, and mercy categories that would describe your life? Are you honorable in your relationships? So it is clear, as we have discussed, these are descriptions for God's people. So these fruits must be active and working in and among us. May it be so of those from Christ's Proclamation Church. And so the third portion of application, endure persecution with joy. So what Jesus describes for us in this happy Christian life is shockingly a life of persecution. But somehow Jesus connects persecution with happiness, with gladness, and with joy. It's all in this section. So as we've seen the reward for those who endure persecution with joy, the reward really is heaven, just like for the saints of old. The Christian endures faithfully. Why? Because they know the truth of texts like 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. Where Paul says this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the cross of righteousness. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." I mean, just listen to the Apostle Paul's perspective. He kept the faith. He finished the race. I mean, we heard earlier how he was joyful in being persecuted by Jews and run out of town. But henceforth, henceforth, through God's spirit indwelling indwelling presence, comes the prize of the rugged race run well. This is the guarantee of the persecuted. Paul knew it, and so must we. Yes, God's people will experience ridicule, reviling, and persecution. It, in fact, that's exactly what Jesus declares we will experience. John fifteen twenty: if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It's a foregone conclusion. But the Christian stands with joy. In the midst of hardship. Knowing that the reward is certain. The prize is rooted in heaven. That brings about endurance. Knowing that it's not for naught. But that God has a plan to reward. Those who are enduring faithfully. With the king himself. And so here's my encouragement. It's twofold. Number one, we must pray. We must pray that God would keep us, that He would strengthen us, and that He would give us joy when trials come, right? We may be thinking, well, I don't really experience persecution. But Jesus has actually said it will come, and so we must be praying in preparation. And number two, we must stand firm. We must have a greater vision of the Lord Jesus. That He is our inheritance. He is our reward. When trials come, we no longer fear. Our reward is sure. Heaven is ours. The kingdom is ours. The King is ours. That should drive us from millennia and beyond, church. The king is ours. And so, to come back to my intro, my question What do you desire in life? What will bring you happiness? What do you crave? What are you longing for? Where is true happiness found? True happiness is not found inside yourself. No, it's rooted fully and finally in the King, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And as we pursue kingdom living, we are promised that we will experience happiness in the King, both now and forever. May God give us the grace to live lives with Godward hearts and honorable relationships in the world that we will be happy in this life in Him. As we await true happiness in the world to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. The King who was sent. Who ushered in the kingdom. For your people. God we pray that we would live lives. That are honoring to you. That bring you much glory even as we uh, love others. We are merciful. We are peacemakers. God, may we also ultimately have Godward hearts. Hearts that are undone by who you are. That we would truly recognize we bring our nothing. That we recognize the weight of our sin. And have humility before the King. God, we are so grateful that our reward is anchored deep in heaven. That Christ the King is our great chief reward. And that one day we will... Know, enjoy, and enjoy you for all eternity. God, we thank you for the good work you are doing and the work that you have promised to complete. We pray all this in Christ's wonderful and precious name. Amen.